Hello, welcome back, everyone. This is Perplexity, a mystery podcast, and I'm your host, Kadra. If you're joining me for the first time, too, welcome. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so psyched to be sharing this story with you guys today. I'm also trying out podcasting in a closet. (laughs) So if you guys notice any uh, difference in the audio or if it sounds better, let me know. I'm trying out the closet to see if it helps at all because some people said it sounded a little bit echoey. Also, if you like the podcast and you have not followed the podcast, be sure to follow on Spotify and leave a five-star review. It really helps boost the the podcast up the algorithm so that I can get these stories to more people. Please remember, this is a one-woman show. I'm doing all of the research for this, so I will be trying to get you guys content on a weekly basis. And I do really enjoy doing this, but it's also a lot of work, a lot of research, so please keep that in mind. This story was actually requested by a listener, which is really cool. So first request, I do take requests. If you guys have a crazy story, be sure to share it with me. If you know me on social media, I think I am going to make that Gmail account so that people can send me their stories. So I'll keep you posted on that. And uh, yeah, let's get into this story. Today I'm going to be talking about T. Colin Davis. And like I said, this was a listener request. So this listener's father actually sat on the jury for this case. At the end, I'm going to be telling you about a personal connection I actually found out I have with this case. I found this out as I was researching and I was shook, you guys. So T. Colin Davis uh, my sources for today are the Generation Y, W-H-Y podcast with Justin and Aaron. If you guys haven't listened to the Generation Y podcast, definitely check it out. They are also a true crime podcast, so they did an episode all about this case. I also got sources from an article from the Washington Post, an article from CBS News, an article from WFAA.com by John McCaw an article from cron.com, C-H-R-O-N, an article from NBCDFW.com by Lily Zhang, a Dateline episode, a post from truecrimediscussions.blogspot.com from a user named indianagirl22472, and, of course, our good friend Wikipedia, Donate, There are also many books, shows, and even a made-for-TV movie about this story. If you guys end up really liking this story, there's a lot more information out there about it. This is a local story. These events took place in the 70s in Fort Worth, Texas, where I grew up. But first, let's talk about some people. Let's talk about Thomas Colin Davis. Some people called him T. Colin Davis, but he was usually referred to just as Colin Davis. In this story, I'll mostly be referring to him as Colin. Colin was born in 1933. He had three brothers, or was one of three brothers, and his dad, Ken Davis, owned a really successful oil company called Ken Davis Industries. And this was the largest in Texas at the time. Colin and his dad were incredibly wealthy. His house growing up was absolutely massive. They had land that took up hundreds of acres. He often enjoyed activities outdoors like archery and canoeing. And as he grew up, 
when it became time for him to drive, his dad got him an Impala. Now, Colin wasn't too happy about this because he wanted a Porsche, but his dad thought it was really important to teach his children to live modestly despite their wealth. He believed this so much to the point where when Colin got married for the first time, because he's had multiple marriages that we'll, we'll talk about, but when he got married for the first time, his dad actually convinced him to continue to live with him in the mansion and not get a house of his own. But Colin felt very differently about how they should spend their money. He really wanted to get out of the house, really wanted to travel, live large, He loved materialistic things, name brand items. And so when he got married to his first wife, this caused some strife between them. From what it sounds like, she wanted to live a quiet, modest life. So he quickly became bored of her. And one day, Colin was playing tennis at a country club. And he noticed a beautiful woman named Priscilla. He was immediately attracted to Priscilla. Priscilla was like typical blonde bombshell. She had beautiful golden locks. She was very petite and she had a fiery personality. She did not come from money. She was uh, quite cultured though. She was middle-class and she was also married at the time to a man named Jack, but she was in the process of getting a divorce. So they have this interesting dynamic because Priscilla's marriage has already fallen to the wayside. She's getting a divorce and Colin is bored of his current wife and trying to move on. So they're at the country club. They get to talking. Priscilla's not initially interested in in him. She just kind of sees him as like an average guy she would see at the country club. But they stay in touch. They connect more and more. And eventually she develops feelings for him. Now, Priscilla has a couple of kids from her marriages. So she had a son named Jackie and her youngest was her daughter named Andrea. Jack was the father of Jackie and Andrea. So those two kids came from her second marriage. She also had her oldest daughter named Dee and Dee was from her first marriage. Colin and Priscilla develop this connection. Things heat up more between them when Priscilla's divorce is finalized with Jack. And Colin and Priscilla end up going to a hotel one day. Now, while they're at this hotel, their room door actually gets kicked in by a private detective and Jack. So it sounds like Jack basically hired this PI to spy on them and he didn't like that Priscilla was already with this other man, even though they were not together at this point. Jack and this PI rush into the hotel and they threw either tear gas or they sprayed Colin and Priscilla with mace and they proceed to take pictures of Priscilla and Colin together. Sounds like this was not a good dude, not a good situation. I couldn't find a lot more information about this particular event, but it sounds like this actually brought Priscilla and Colin even closer together. Not long after this, they fell in love and they wanted to get married, but they wanted to get married in secret. It sounds like this was because Priscilla was middle class. She didn't come from wealth. 
and she didn't have the same etiquette that Colin's family had been instilled to follow. Colin's family didn't really like Priscilla. They didn't like that she wasn't the typical woman of the 70s. She wasn't conservative. She wasn't afraid to show her body. And she wasn't afraid to tell people to fuck off, essentially. (laughs) She uh, was very free with her body, like I said. She often wore shorter, more revealing clothing. She even had a necklace that she started wearing when she was out with Cullen that was encrusted with diamonds that read, Rich Bitch. (laughs) Which, to some people, that might not seem like a big deal now. But remember, this was the 70s in very conservative Texas, the Bible Belt, so this was a huge deal. So the day that Cullen and Priscilla plan to get married, Cullen's dad actually passes away, but they don't postpone the wedding. They continue, they get married, they start their lives together, so a lot of people found that controversial. And so at the time they get married, Cullen has a net worth of about $100 million, which in today's money, would be an exorbitant amount of money. So he was very, very wealthy, and his empire continues to build throughout he and Priscilla's marriage. Colin and Priscilla get married, and Colin wants to build a house of his own, design his dream home. He builds this house on 180 acres of land, and the house was estimated back then to be worth somewhere between 3.8 and 6 million dollars. So, a 6 million dollar house back in the 70s would be worth roughly 27 to 30 million dollars today. The house was actually located off Highway 30, so local Texans if y'all know where that is. It was very close to Texas Christian University, TCU and the Fort Worth Zoo. So he got a hundred acre a hundred and eighty acres of land in that area, kind of like a, a ranch, and he designed this house. It had 20 rooms in it, foosball tables, pool tables, indoor, in-ground pools, 360 fireplaces, and he filled the home with mid-century modern top-of-the-line furniture professional artwork that he bought from this gallery. The story goes that he drove by this gallery one day and just decided, you know what, I'm going to buy all the artwork in here. I love this. So he took all of the artwork from this gallery and filled his home with it. They became pretty big socialites in the Fort Worth area. They were known, uh, Colin and Priscilla were known to throw these lavish parties. Some people say that these parties were riddled with drugs But what appeared to be a celebrity dream life wasn't so pretty on the inside. According to the media and several people that partied with Colin and Priscilla, Colin had a pretty serious temper. So before I get into this, trigger warning, content warning, there is domestic abuse and animal abuse in this next part of the story. So there was a story one time about Colin that was at a pool hall. So he's at this pool hall shooting pool, and he is using a pool stick that Priscilla had given to him as a gift. But Colin did not like to lose. He was a very competitive guy, and he's not doing well in pool. He keeps losing. And so he becomes so enraged that he actually takes the pool stick that Priscilla had given him, 
and starts smashing it against the wall. Another time, they were in a hotel, uh, he and Priscilla, and they were at some type of nice event. They were dancing in a ballroom, and Colin starts dancing with another woman and groping her. So Priscilla, understandably, was not happy about this, and not being the typical woman of the 70s, she calls him out on it and storms off. He ends up following her back to their hotel room, and they get in this big argument about it, and he beat her up for not showing him respect in front of other people. There was also another time that Priscilla and Colin were on a ski trip, and she was on crutches. So there are questions about whether she was on crutches from maybe a skiing injury, or if it was because he had beaten her so bad. But at some point, they end up having another argument during this time, and he actually uses one of Priscilla's crutches to beat her. There was another time where Priscilla's youngest daughter, Andrea, had forgotten to arm the security system at their mansion. They had a top-of-the-line security system. They had shown Andrea how to arm it, and they would leave her home alone at times. Anyway, she was supposed to arm the security system, She forgot, and she also left the door unlocked, as people often do when they are young children. Colin wakes Andrea up in the middle of the night and struck her, and he starts going off about how they have to always lock the doors because people will steal his stuff. So, no concern whatsoever for the well-being of his family, mind you, just his material possessions. So Priscilla overhears this commotion. She comes to check what's going on, and Priscilla is holding their pet cat. So in his fit of rage, Colin actually grabs the cat, and this is horrible, you guys, I'm sorry, and he smashes the cat against the wall until it's dead. The police came out to Priscilla and Colin's mansion dozens of times for domestic violence calls. Pretty early on in this story, we know what kind of man Colin Davis is. Eventually, Priscilla has had enough of this abuse, and she worries for her children children's well-being. So she decides to get her and her children out of this situation. So after Colin and Priscilla had been married for six years, Priscilla separates herself from Colin. Not long after, they both start dating other people. And while they're in the middle of their divorce proceedings, Priscilla is dating a man named Stanford Farr, known as Stan. Stan was a former TCU basketball player. He's incredibly tall, six foot ten. People often described him as a gentle giant, though, so very kind, nonviolent. And he ran a bar. Colin starts dating this woman named Karen Master. During all of the divorce proceedings, Colin actually ends up being forced to move out of this dream home that he designed. So this absolutely enrages Colin. There's this power dynamic here that really throws him off, and Colin starts living with his girlfriend, Karen. So a year or two goes by, and these new couples are still together It's August 2nd, 1976, and there is another divorce court hearing for Colin and Priscilla. The divorce court 
rules more in Priscilla's favor, and they increase her monthly alimony from $3,000 to $5,000. So later that same day, Priscilla and Stan decide to go out for dinner and drinks at the country club. They have dinner and drinks with some friends, and they leave Priscilla's 12-year-old daughter, Andrea, home alone. So remember, this would have been really common back in the 70s, and they have a top-of-the-line security system. So Priscilla and Stan go out with their friends, and they end up arriving back at the mansion sometime after midnight. When Stan and Priscilla walk into the mansion, Priscilla notices something odd about the security panel. And the security panel actually alerts her that one of the doors to the mansion had been opened at some point while her and Stan were at dinner. Priscilla knows that it's possible this door could have been opened by Andrea, but it just doesn't sit right with her. At this point, Priscilla also notices that the basement lights are on, which is not common. So she starts to walk towards the basement, and she sees a bloody handprint on the basement door. At this point, she's freaking out. She hasn't seen her daughter, Andrea, at this point, so she's worried for her well-being. And she gets scared, so she starts to call for Stan because Stan is has walked to some other part of the mansion. So she's yelling, you know, Stan, Stan, something's wrong. And so she turns and starts to head to where she thinks Stan is. And at this point, a man steps out in front of her from the laundry room. He's wearing a black shoulder-length wig, black clothing, and had black plastic bags wrapped around his hands, which were concealing a revolver. The man says, hi, and then he shoots Priscilla in the abdomen with this revolver. Stan hears the gunshot, of course, and comes running. This is when the attacker starts to go after the big threat, Stan. Stan ends up getting a door shut between him and this attacker, and they begin to push back and forth on the door. And the intruder eventually realizes there's no way that he is going to be able to get this door open because Stan is a big, strong dude. So the intruder decides that he's just going to fire the gun through the door. When he does this, he actually shoots Stan, and this causes Stan to cry out in pain. The door um, gets open at this point, so the intruder manages to, you know, get himself on top of Stan. There's a struggle between the intruder and Stan, but unfortunately, the intruder ends up shooting Stan again. And this is when Stan falls down in front of Priscilla. The intruder then shoots Stan in front of Priscilla two more times. This is when Stan stops moving and becomes unresponsive. The intruder then grabs Stan by his feet and begins dragging him towards the basement. Priscilla decides this is probably the best time for her to try and get away from the situation. So she starts running, but the intruder knows she's trying to get away. So the intruder tries to stop Priscilla from escaping, but somehow she ends up getting out of the mansion and she hides in some bushes outside of the house. Not long after, she hears a car pull up in the driveway of the mansion, and this sound is followed by more gunfire. Priscilla runs off the property over 100 yards to the next residence, where she's able to get help. So her neighbors are the ones who called the police, 
And the police arrive. They end up locking down the neighborhood to make sure no one's coming or going. And the police, when they arrive on the property, the first people they find are friends of Priscilla, Gus, who goes by Bubba, and Bev. Gus had been out with his girlfriend, Bev. They planned to stop by Priscilla's house after, so that's why they were there. They pulled up to the driveway, and the intruder had just killed Stan and was trying to drag his body to the basement, but the intruder hears the car outside, so he runs outside, and he ends up shooting Bubba in the spine. Bubba survives, but he's left paralyzed. It sounds like Bev was luckily not harmed. So the police then enter the home, and this is where they find Stan dead in the kitchen with four gunshot wounds. Finally, the police go down to the basement, and this is where they find the 12-year-old Andrea. She is dead and has been shot in the chest. So paramedics arrive. They're giving everyone medical attention, and they start to talk to Priscilla. And this is when Priscilla identifies the shooter as her ex-husband, Colin Davis. So I didn't want to give this away, but when Priscilla recounts the event and she's shouting for Stan and um, the man steps out of the laundry room, she starts to shout to Stan, it's Colin, Colin, and he shoots her and she says, Colin shot me, Colin shot me. So Priscilla has identified the shooter as her ex-husband, Colin Davis. And Bev, Priscilla's friend, also knew Colin personally. When Bev and Bubba pull up to the mansion and this intruder runs outside, Bev goes, oh, that's Colin Davis. So she identifies him as well. Bubba did not know Colin personally, but when he was in the hospital... And he was shown photos by the police to identify the shooter. He selects Colin Davis's photo. So at this point, the police are pretty sure they've got their man. Three people have identified him as the shooter. Uh, I should also mention that throughout the investigation, they do not ever find the murder weapon. Priscilla was okay. She survived the gunshot wound to the abdomen. They end up going to Karen Master's home later that night. And this is where they find and arrest Colin Davis. So they arrest him from his girlfriend's home. When they arrest him, he is very clearly intoxicated. And what's also interesting here is how Colin is treated when he's arrested. So normally when someone is arrested for a suspected murder, they are uh, handcuffed, right? Not this guy. Colin was allowed to not only change clothes, but put on a nice little sports coat. And the police did not put him in handcuffs. They simply put him in the back of the car and drove him to the station. So then there's this judge, W.W. Matthews, and he starts to be involved in this case. And W.W. Matthews sets Colin's bond pretty low, in my opinion, for suspected murders. So the bond is somewhere between fifty dollars and $80,000. And this is nothing for a wealthy guy like Colin. Matthews is also quoted saying, this man will probably never hurt anybody again. 
he was just drunk. The police say he was quite drunk, and when he's drunk, he gets really mad. I guess we're just using drunk now as an excuse to murder children and adults, but whatever. Priscilla, like I said, survives all of this. She ends up getting a pretty bad staph infection from the bullet wound in the hospital, but she she turns around, she becomes more stable, and a reverend comes to visit Priscilla in the hospital and informs her that her daughter Andrea has been murdered. The police end up interviewing Colin. Colin claims he was at the movies that night watching the Bad News Bears, but he has no one at all to corroborate this story, not even his girlfriend. He claims he went to the movies alone. He doesn't have a movie ticket to produce to law enforcement. And no one at the movie theater was able to corroborate this story. No one saw Colin at the movie theater that night. Like I said, Colin's bail was set pretty low. Surprise, surprise, Mr. Richman makes bail. Uh, when he gets out, he goes to the airport, and there is a private hangar plane waiting for him. The authorities end up following Colin, luckily, and they stop him before he can flee. Colin claims he's just going on a short business trip to Houston. No big deal. Colin doesn't have luggage or anything with him. The hangar is also fully fueled with more than enough fuel to fly 2,500 miles, which would be enough to get him out of the country. Now, there's some conflicting reports as to whether the pilot told law enforcement they were going to South America or not, specifically Brazil. But Brazil is over 4,000 miles away from Fort Worth. So if this were true, they would have had to stop somewhere and refuel. So it's possible that maybe he was fleeing and feared for his life. You know, oh no, this guy's out to get me too. He tried to kill my ex-wife. Maybe he's going to get me. But I I feel like from the evidence that's been presented so far, it's pretty unlikely. Another thing that's interesting about this case is related to Priscilla's oldest daughter, Dee. So Dee actually talked to Colin on the day of the murders about her allowance. And Colin said to her, you really need to talk to your mom about this. And he was actually very insistent that Dee talk to her that night. Now, fortunately for Dee, she did not go home that night because she had already made plans. After a few weeks of Cullen being free, they arrested him again, because now they know he's a flight risk, and they put him in the county jail. This time, they do not set bail. So eventually, it comes time for the trial. He is 42 years old at this point. They initially consider having the trial in Fort Worth. However, they got the jury they got the jury together in Fort Worth and a juror actually came home <laughs> and told their family about the case so because of this the trial gets moved to Amarillo Texas which for those of you who don't know Amarillo is about 5 hours from Fort Worth and Colin Davis at this time still has his oil business which is worth about 400 million dollars now Uh, He would be known as the most wealthy man to ever stand trial for murder. So while Colin is going through this trial, instead of being brought out in shackles or a jumpsuit, 
or being put back in a jail cell between court recesses, you know, like everyone that's on trial for murder. Colin gets a little bit of a different treatment. He is hanging out in a meeting room with the Dallas cheerleaders eating steak. The press also interviews Colin throughout the trial, and people even hang out around the courthouse waiting for Colin so that they can get autographs from him. So not only is Colin getting this incredibly privileged treatment, but throughout the whole trial, Priscilla's character is extremely slandered in the media and by Colin's legal team. In the papers, journalists describe drug-driven orgies that Priscilla would have at the house and how she often spent her time with drug addicts because she used Percodan. Percodan is a combination of aspirin and oxy, so that's supposedly where she would get the Percodan from, is from these drug addicts. And during the trial, the defense actually brings on this expert witness that claims Percodan would have caused Priscilla to be confused or mistaken about who she saw that night. I actually looked up the side effects for Percodan. None of the common side effects for this medication were confusion. However, confusion was listed as a rare side effect. So while it's possible that the Percodan could have maybe confused her, it's not likely. And also, I feel like she would have still been able to recognize someone she was married to. And if we're going to go with that whole story, there's uh, another theory that they basically bring out during the trial that we'll, we'll get more into. But they basically try to tie the whole thing on Priscilla and say that she was involved and it was this whole conspiracy to frame Cullen. But if she was, quote unquote, high on Percodan, she would have had to have been coherent enough to shoot these people. And to also shoot herself in the abdomen, which makes no sense at all. So Cullen's representation is very interesting in this case. He was represented by a lawyer named Richard Haynes. A lot of people referred to Haynes as racehorse Haynes. And he character assassinates Priscilla to the extreme throughout the trial. He was a very well-established attorney, and he was known for taking these crazy, high-profile cases. Colin actually paid Racehorse Haynes $250,000 for his services in this trial, and he paid the law firm $1.5 million. Like I said, Racehorse Haynes kind of ran with two theories throughout the trial. He talks about how it could have been a biker or drug deal gone wrong with a random assailant, but... This theory doesn't really pan out because nothing was stolen from the house, nothing had been ransacked. And then the other theory, like I said, was that it was actually Priscilla who perpetrated this and tried to frame Cullen. So (laughs) he basically accuses Priscilla of not only murdering her 12-year-old daughter, but murdering her boyfriend, the only healthy relationship this woman has ever been in. And attempting to murder two of her friends, for what? Not to mention, again, she would have had to have shot herself. And not just, like, grazed herself, but shot herself in the abdomen. All in order to frame Cullen? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. So, November 17th, 1977, the trial concluded. 
the jury deliberates for less than five hours. And what do you guys want to guess the verdict is? Not guilty. I know. Yeah. So, (laughs) took me quite a while to wrap my mind around that. This is not where the story ends, though, you guys. Some time passes after this trial, and Priscilla and Colin's divorce proceedings are actually still going on. The judge presiding over this whole case is named Judge Eidson. At some point, Judge Eidson actually tells Colin he's no longer allowed to make any business decisions without his approval. This causes Colin's business to come to a standstill, which means all of his assets were frozen and his family business starts losing money by the day. One year later, Colin Davis is back in court because the FBI ends up getting a recording of Colin paying his friend, David McCory, $25,000 after David shows him photographic proof that Judge Eidson had been murdered. The photos show Judge Eidson bound and thrown in the trunk of a car, and he had been shot to death. But what Cullen doesn't know is this is all an FBI setup. So Judge Eidson is alive and well. And the FBI actually gets Cullen on audio and videotape. And you can watch the video actually online. And when listening to the audio, you can actually hear Cullen (laughs) approving of this news. He's like really stoked that the judge has been killed. And he also gives his friend David a list of other people that he wants dead. David McCory is involved. He's an FBI informant. And when Cullen gives him the $25,000 for a job well done, Cullen gets a silencer from McCory. So they exchange $25,000. McCory gives Cullen a silencer. So in the trial, David McCrory is a witness and FBI employees are witnesses. It seems like this case would be pretty open and shut, right? (laughs) So what is Cullen to do? So he decides to bring back none other than Racehorse Haynes to represent him again. Now this time, Cullen pays Haynes $2 million to represent him. And Cullen's defense in this case is pretty wild because what what are they going to do? What is their case here when they have all this evidence against him? So Haynes actually brings Priscilla back into this. So towards the end of the trial, Cullen approaches the stand and when Haynes is interviewing him, they lay out this absolutely insane conspiracy theory. And they say it was Priscilla who hired killers. And Colin thought these killers were going to come after him. (laughs) He says he thought he was working for the FBI because allegedly he received a call from someone named Agent James Acree. Colin claims that Acree told him this plot was going to happen and that he was going to be framed and Acree told him to just play along and that the FBI would take care of it and that they would protect him. 
So when he was paying the $25,000 to McCrory, he thought he was working with the FBI. Come on, guys. He doesn't deny that it's him in the video. He doesn't deny paying McCrory. He doesn't deny any of it. He just says it's all part of the conspiracy. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I can't take this seriously. Um, The defense basically, you know, spins it that Priscilla is trying to take all of Colin's money again and she's just out to ruin him. The defense also claims that McCrory betrayed Colin and was working for Priscilla, which is really interesting because McCrory was actually a witness for Cullen's defense in the first trial. What's also interesting is that Cullen is arrested in his second trial, right? But he never once tries to convince the police that he was working for the FBI. He never mentions anything about the FBI. So none of these claims surface until the trial, which to me, if I was wrongfully arrested for something, I would be freaking out, right? I would be like, you guys, you have it wrong. Like, I was working for the FBI. You know, I, he he would have said something, but he doesn't. <laughs> for whatever reason, the jury found Cullen's testimony very compelling. So it takes a few days for the jury to come back. It's a hung jury. Eight jurors are saying he's not guilty. Four jurors are saying that he is guilty. So... <laughs> The trial is deadlocked, and the judge declares a mistrial. You guys, Cullen was never retried. So at this point in my research, I was throwing things. I was having a downward spiral. Um, yeah, he got off on two murder trials, or a, a murder and then a murder for hire, basically. So now Cullen is actually a self-proclaimed born-again Christian. He is alive and well. He's 89 years old, living in Colleyville, and he has been doing missionary work. He was also interviewed in the media by a lot of people, and he has always proclaimed his innocence. And what's really interesting, too, is in one interview I watched, he is talking uh, to News 8. This is in 2016. And the guy interviewing him is a man named John McCaw. And McCaw asks Colin about the $25,000 that was, you know, exchanged in the video. And Colin claims he doesn't remember the details of why this $25,000 was exchanged. He's just like, yeah, like, I remember giving the money, but I don't really remember the details. So you would think... That you would remember paying a friend $25,000 in a parking lot, especially considering this friend showed him pictures of a dead man bound and shot to death in the trunk of a car. I, I feel like that would stick with me. McCaw also asks Colin about the first trial with the murders that occurred in his home, and Cullen is quoted immediately saying, wasn't me. And McCaw says, you never had a wig? Cullen responds, no. McCaw asks, never had any involvement, any kind of plot planned? And Cullen says, no, no. So McCaw goes, 
you're absolutely 100% not guilty of this. And Colin responds, that's absolutely 100% right. So a lot of people wonder whatever happened to this mansion. Colin's mansion became known as the Stonegate Mansion, and it actually remained intact until it was very recently torn down. Uh, it had been repurposed many times. It became a church at one point. It had been used as a wedding venue. It was even a Mexican restaurant. Uh, but eventually this guy bought it and the city basically convinced him to tear it down because people were so fed up with seeing this house every day. <laughs> it seems like most people know what actually happened in these cases. Priscilla is unfortunately no longer with us. She passed away in 2001. She was 59 years old and she had breast cancer. Her daughter Dee was at her side when she passed. Now Dee has always felt that Colin Davis was responsible for the murders at the Stonegate Mansion. What's also really tragic is that throughout Priscilla's battle with cancer, Dee says that Priscilla actually feared using pain medication to cope with her symptoms because of what the media might say about her, because she was slandered so badly during the trial for using Percodan. After Cullen was acquitted, the same year that Priscilla passed away, there were also some more developments in the murder case. So in 2001, a reporter came forward saying he had been approached by someone who had been on Colin's defense team, and they said there had been a mole in the prosecution feeding them information. They were given several thousands of dollars for their cooperation. The reporter investigates this claim more and more. He finds his way to Karen Masters' father, who Karen was estranged from. No one really knows why they're estranged. Karen Masters' father claimed he was the middleman to this mole. And the mole's name ends up being revealed as Morris Howith. There had been at least $25,000 filtered to this mole from Cullen. So by the time this information comes out, nothing could be done. It was also discovered that the defense had hired a man who received over $2,000 for about 100 hours of work, and this man's job was to be a Fort Worth crime scene investigator. Apparently, his secondary job was to let the defense know about how the crime scene was investigated. So when the case went to trial, this man was already retired he was receiving his pension, no longer a crime scene investigator. Then, there was just a small issue of jury tampering. The jury was sequestered in a local Amarillo motel. A waitress in the hotel dining room was supposedly paid by the defense to get the jury talking about the case, and she would report back to the defense what they were revealing. According to this waitress, they never had to worry. The jury was always on their side. So if that didn't work, the defense apparently also hired an artist to sit in the courtroom and make these paintings or pictures of each juror. Supposedly, these pictures would have had a market value of about $300 each at the time. Each picture was given to a family member of the juror. So it was confirmed that 
The jurors have admitted they did receive these pictures, and during the trial, the prosecution actually complained to the court that they had seen Cullen speaking to the jurors' families. It was Karen's father who said many times it was the families thanking Cullen for the pictures that the prosecution did not know about all those years. So one last interesting thing here before I start to wrap up this this case story. In 2004, a man by the name of Billy Vickers, who was sitting on death row in Texas, actually confessed to being the killer at the Stonegate Mansion and killing Andrea Wilborn and Stan Farr, as well as shooting the others. Supporters to his statement say that this crime was similar in nature to other crimes he had committed and was convicted of. So he was often known to commit murder while burglarizing homes. Some say this brought an end to the question of whether Colin was guilty, but I'm not convinced, especially considering a week after this supposed confession, Vickers was executed by the state of Texas. So that is the story of Colin Davis. And I told you guys I would tell you my connection to this case. When I started seeing how close it was to where I grew up, I figured, you know, this happened in the 70s. Let me reach out to my parents. Maybe they heard of it. So I'm going to tell you guys what I found out, okay? I text my parents, you know, have you ever heard of this case? I sent them a link, and my dad texted me back and said, Your mother and I were both in first grade when this happened, so we didn't know and understand all of the details, etc. But I distinctly remember... His and the Davis family name were being circulated all about because of this. My mom and dad were talking about it. So then my mom texts me and says, yes, I was actually friends with his son. Now, I'm not going to use the son's name, but my mom says that this son swore up and down that his dad was innocent and explained the whole thing to me and... um. Or sorry, so I'm quoting my mom here. I want to make sure this makes sense. So he swore up and down his dad was innocent and explained the whole thing to me and my friend when we were in high school. I can't remember all the details, though, because it's been so long. His son went to the same school as my friend. We hung out with him all the time. So then my mom says, their house was nice. I was in it multiple times. I'm sorry, what? So at this point, I'm like, mom, how have you never told me this? <laughs> and my mom was like, yeah, my parents didn't have any problem with me going over there. No one was ever there, though, when we were there. I only remember my friend and the plethora of servant staff. And then she said, I feel like he lived with his mom at the time and they were divorced. So then my mom suggested that I ask my grandma about this because she might remember more about the case. So I did. And I found out that my grandma went to school with Karen Master, who was Colin's girlfriend at the time of all this and later became his third wife. So not only this, but my grandparents were friends after this whole trial with Colin and Karen. So she told me about a time that they flew to the governor's mansion in Alabama with Karen and Cullen. It's about 15 years after the murders took place. So my grandma says, we were flying to hear the prime minister of Israel speak at a private event in Alabama. The event was wild. 
I had never seen so many fancy dishes and exquisite foods in all my life. Karen and Cullen were normal, friendly people who enjoyed worshiping and services with us and giving to all kinds of charities to help our world. They were also instrumental in helping two of our friends when they had an international ministry. So then my grandma starts to talk about these friends and how we, meaning me and my sister and the other grandchildren, actually went to these friends' uh, property one Thanksgiving. And I remember this. I remember one Thanksgiving, I was probably like 12 or 13, we went to a, a log cabin on the lake, which I couldn't remember where it was, but I asked my grandma. She said it was off of Lake Hawkins in Tyler, Texas. And this log cabin was owned by my Mimi and Papa's friends. So we stayed at their place that Thanksgiving, and these people were involved in ministry with Cullen and Karen, and Cullen gave my grandma's friends who had this land, uh, he, he gave them the land, essentially. So he donated her friend twelve to 1,300 acres for their ministry, and part of this land was where these log cabins were. So when I was a child, I unknowingly stayed on land that was donated by a potential murderer. So I had an entire existential crisis while I was doing this story. I thought this would just be interesting because it was a local case and it was a listener suggestion. You know, this listener's dad sat on the jury. I... I didn't think it would go further than that. So I was pretty shocked to find out there was this connection. But that is the story. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, tell your friends. Tell your grandma. <laughs> tell your dog. And please leave a five-star review. It will help, again, with those algorithms and the podcast gods that be. <laughs> so don't forget to follow the podcast so you know when new episodes are coming. And lastly... If you have a story you want me to do and you know me on social media, feel free to reach out. And I will talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye.